Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting early this morning from a wintry day here in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we mark the official transition in the podcast. By this point in time, most of us are aware that our world is gripped by serious problems and that a subversive totalitarian takeover is well underway. We can continue to highlight all those problems and issues or choose to focus on the change that we wish to see, to put our intention and energy into building a new world that makes the existing version obsolete. It's our choice. Live in the darkness or bring forth the light. I am choosing the latter. Joining us to lead off this new direction is Donald Lee, a Canadian author, amongst other things. Donald has been delivered by the universe to assist us to be to bring spirit into materiality and to help people in the world, but not of it and to guide folks along their individual spiritual journey back to God, the Creator, or Source. In his newest and latest book, What the Hell is Going On?, Don draws from information from a dozen different fields and presents ideas you may not have heard elsewhere. He connects the dots in a web of fraud to expose what is really going on and how we came to this and what we can do to get out of it. Don exclaims that we're on a well-worn path to totalitarian slavery, but there's still time to detour to another pathway. It's up to every single person to open their eyes, understand what's really going on, and make this choice. The eclectic Donald Lee, apart from being a spiritual author and speaker, has or is a musician, band director, an economist, a businessman, and much more. Donald, it is an honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. It's my honor to to be here and to have this chance to to talk with you and share some ideas with each other and, and with your audience. Well, very good, and I thank you for for hitting me up on the email. And uh, it's nice to nice to know somebody uh, with your uh, intellect and and thought processes or as a listener to the show as well. That uh, that warms my heart. So before we get into the details of today's interview, perhaps you could share with the listeners a little bit more about your life story. And then what motivated or inspired you to step away from the mainstream world and begin questioning what the hell is going on here on planet Earth? Well, thank thank you very much, Mike. I I won't delve too much into my whole life story. That would take up up several days. But I I count this as my third career. You know, I spent almost uh, 20 years in the fertilizer industry in Western Canada and then uh, made a career change, went back to my first love, which is music. And I became a band director and a teacher and spent almost two years as a band director and two decades, sorry, as a band director and a teacher. And then uh, a few years ago, I I officially retired from teaching and began my third career as a as a spiritual author and speaker. And my plan, of course, plans get changed. Like I say, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. So (laughs) I. my plan is to spend the, the rest of my life, however much is left, uh, being an author and a speaker. And so the, the second part of your question, Michael, was, you know, what, um, uh, what, in, what kind of made me realize that something really weird is going on. And, and that was when COVID hit. You know, I'd, I'd had uh, doubts about, you know, some of the, the things we were being told for many years. There was things that just didn't make sense in life. But like just about everybody else, I mean, I, I was just busy living my life, right? Raising my family, you know, doing my job, uh, you know, trying to be a part of my community and, you know, all, all that kind of good stuff. And, and you know, we don't look um, too carefully at sort of all the, the grand machinations going on in, in the world. And But when, when COVID hit in March of 2020, I was just in the process of planning a cross Canada book, um, book selling tour when the whole world shut down. 
I mean, all the bookstores shut down, all uh, uh, every kind of store shut down. I had actually, I was uh, one of my big goals for 2020 was to start, um, you know, getting paid for public speaking. And I'd actually, you know, had a couple of gigs lined up at uh, conferences because that's that's the main source of public speaking gigs for speakers is at conferences of various sorts. Well, all the conferences were canceled. And you know, so like all of my plans, I had you know a thousand copies of my new book in my basement, in my basement, and you know ten thousand dollar visa bill that I couldn't pay because I was going to pay it off by selling the books. And and I thought, what the hell's going on? Like nothing makes sense. And of course, that ultimately became the title of this book: What the hell's going on? So yeah, that's what really clued me in, and I started you know paying more attention to what's going on. This doesn't make sense. We did. I mean, we've had sort of epidemics we've had bad flu seasons like the world never shut down this is crazy so that's what really caused me to wake up and then as i started we say nowadays going down the rabbit holes but you know started looking more carefully more deeply and since i didn't have a full-time job you know i had more time to to do you know what we now call research so yeah that's what, what woke, woke me up in in early 2020 Interesting. So it was a, it was a more recent um, uh, deviation from the mainstream narrative. Although it sounds like you had probably been questioning uh, some of the the tactics prior to that. Yeah, some. I mean, you, for example, when you know, I I I'm a late boomer, right? So I caught the tail end of the hippie generation. You know, I was kind of a hippie in the in the early '70s and that long hair and stuff, and then spent most of my years kind of with a kind of a clean cut businessman look, but when when all the stores shut down, including the barbershops and stuff, I couldn't get my hair cut. And I was mad about that for a while. You know, your hair gets a little bit longer than you're used to. And you think, I want to go get a haircut. This is driving me nuts. And so it was drove me nuts for a couple of weeks. And eventually I said, well, forget it. I won't cut my hair. I won't cut my hair till we get freedom again. So now after two and a half years, I'm back to my old teenage hippie look and my hair might get really long before we get freedom back <laughs> so yeah you know it, it might be going back to my my adolescent roots as being a kind of anti-mainstream but well i think i think the uh, flowing white locks are, are a good look on you sir so i think that was uh, that turned out well for you <laughs> so <laughs> well at least i still have some i mean at, at at this age my father didn't have much hair at all so it, it, it won't last forever anyway it's it'll fall out eventually there you go. So would you agree that many of the people and institutions that we have trusted our whole lives can no longer be trusted? And furthermore, that they've methodically lied for decades in a way that can only be assessed as fraudulent? Yeah, you know, this this is so important, Martin. And um, all, all of us, there's, there's all these biases, right? You're probably familiar with some of them. There's dozens, maybe even hundreds of, of biases that all of us humans suffer from. And one of them is called the normalcy bias. We always have a tendency that whatever happens, we just kind of think it's normal, you know, normalize. Oh yeah, this is normal. It's normal to wear a mask. Oh yeah, it's normal to, you know, force everybody to close their businesses. And, you know, we've come to think of this as being normal. It's not normal. And so what we have going on in the world is some very fundamental changes and and not everybody has figured this out. And I think the normalcy bias plays into this a lot. But many of the people and institutions that we have trusted for our whole lives, it turns out simply can't be trusted anymore. 
And this is so foundational because trust is the foundation of every single relationship. You know, if, if you can't trust your spouse, like you, you don't have a marriage. It's, it's over. And as we found out with, uh, for example, a year ago with the truckers convoy and Canadian banks just froze the accounts, bank accounts of thousands of people for no legitimate reason whatsoever. And all, you know, many, many people suddenly realized, hold it, we can't trust our banks. Well, <laughs> then you can't have a relationship with the bank if you can't trust that bank. And so, you know, we had like, the reason that the, all of the, the Bankers Association, you know, went to Trudeau and said, hold it, you got to stop this, was, be, you know, that people might might have heard at the time, I think it was the Toronto Dominion Bank was the worst. Like they saw something like 10, 10 million or 10, I can't, billion, I can't remember how much money, but massive amounts of money were withdrawn from Canadian banks. As soon as people who had big deposits realized, hold it, like they might just freeze our accounts and, you know, businesses in particular. Well, you know, you have you have bill, you have invoices to pay, you have salary wages and salaries to pay. Like you can't just have your, your bank account frozen. This is the end of your business. And if banks are going to do this, like it's over. You can't have a relationship. And so millions of people, not only in Canada, but all over the world, looked at this and thought, holy crap, like something very fundamental has changed. So, you know, and that's just, just one. We, you know, we also begun to see that we can't trust our politicians. And now people who are realizing a little bit about what's going on, we say, hold it, we can't, we can't trust our doctors. <laughs> and like, we can't necessarily trust our scientists. Like, who can we trust? When trust breaks down in a society, all of society breaks down. Yes, I mean, we've certainly seen a number of these regulatory bodies and, and trusted individuals within our society that, uh, you know, uh, I guess to those of us who are awake, um, there is no more trust with any of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's an important point. So why is it important that the way we've been taught to see the world is not really how the world is, and that only by changing our perception will we begin to understand what is truly unfolding? Well, that's, that's a, a great question, Michael. And, um, you know, I, I make the point repeatedly throughout the book, and, and it's very much related to what I've just, what I've just touched on here, is that you know, all of us perceive the world in a certain way. You know, we look at the world through our own eyes, from our own kind of place, geographically, historically, culturally, all the rest of it. And, but also through our worldview, right? We've come, you know, during, typically during adolescence, we form what we call a worldview. It's our understanding of how the world works, what's real, what's not real, and what our place in the world is. And, you know, everybody's worldview is a little bit different. And it's not that one person's worldview is correct and everybody else is wrong. It's all of us have a different perspective. All of us perceive the world and perceive everything in the world a little bit differently. And each of us gains something by trying to 
you know, see the world from other people's point of view, other people's perspectives, other people's perceptions. I mean, it's, it's, we have so many little kind of wise sayings about this, right? Like, you know, before you criticize your brother, walk a mile in his moccasins and, and all sorts of things like that, right? Like if we can perceive things from the perspective and the, per the perception of other people, we gain a broader understanding of the world and of our place in the world. And so, um, what we're, you know, if if our perception of the world is clouded by these biases, like the normalcy bias, um, and by the fact that the world has changed and yet we're still looking at it as if it, it's the way it was, then we're really what we're responding to is not reality but a fantasy. And this, I don't know if you want to get into it at, at this point, but this touches on exactly how fraud works and what the nature of fraud is we end up responding to a fantasy instead of reality and so our our actions our decisions are inappropriate and end up um, working out badly hmm. interesting interesting <clears throat> and then do you feel that honesty was once one of the most valued virtues in western civilization and, and what are the consequences when honesty becomes replaced by lies this this is massive, Michael. And you know, I it was we were mentioning uh, just in our uh, when we were talking a little bit before we went on air that I, uh, after our youngest graduated from high school, my wife and I went overseas and I taught in international schools for four years in in you know Islamic countries, and it is of course always interesting to live in and become sort of immersed in a different culture. It's one way to help you see things from a different perspective, see the world from a different perspective. And one of the things that was very interesting to me is, is that even though, of course, in Islamic cultures, they give sort of lip service to honesty and they all say, well, of course, we're honest. But the truth is that there are other things that are far more important to them. Loyalty is far more important than honesty. And so people will, uh, you know, will kind of make up all sorts of stories and, and, and say lies in order to kind of protect their family, um, their kind of clan, their, you know, people that they're close with. And they don't see this as, they don't see this as a problem. They don't see this as being immoral because loyalty is more important, right? It's kind of a, almost like you could think of sort of a hierarchy of virtues, whereas in in our you know western culture you know honesty has always been more important than loyalty and you know if if our employer is doing something illegal most of us would see that see it as being you know the the ethical and moral thing to do would be to call that out maybe even report that to the police or or however that goes if someone in our family uh was committing a crime we would see that you know the the virtuous and moral and ethical thing to do would be to you know report that to the proper authorities rather than to maintain loyalty to our family member whereas in in you know many parts of the world i don't want to just just pick on the islamic world but in many parts of the world loyalty would be regarded as a more important virtue than honesty now this has really really important implications for all of society and so when when honesty um falls from its its place and, and I, I kind of explain in the book where you know democracy itself 
cannot exist without honesty. And in on the, in the political sphere of things, you know, de democracy is is on the other end of the spectrum from communism or from totalitarianism. And you know, the great historian and observer of communism, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, has said that communism is a system of lies. It's a web of lies. And his his famous uh, essay as he was being thrown out of the Soviet Union in 1974, his title is Live Not by Lies, in which he says, if you stop going along with the lies, that communism will collapse, the structure will collapse, if you simply stop going along with the lies. So we have these, you know, honesty is, is essential for democracy. Lies are essential for totalitarianism. And the, the more you move away from honesty and go along with lies, the more you move your whole society towards totalitarianism. It has huge implications. Very interesting, very interesting. So Donald, help us understand the spiritual reality of our present situation. What is happening here on planet Earth presently? <laughs> oh, Michael, that's, that's very kind of you to presume that I have an answer to that massive question. <laughs> there's, there's, there, I mean, many, and many people who um, who are at least somewhat spiritually attuned, shall we say, um, realize that there is something going on. And I have only sort of begun to scratch the surface of what this is. It's been explained in many ways uh, with many terms, but there is a sort of a spiritual awakening going on in the world. And it's manifesting itself in many, many different ways. Um, in, in one sense, as, um, you know, even back when I was young, you know, uh, I, I remember late 60s, there was this famous uh, Broadway musical called uh, Hair, right? It was called Hair. And the, one, the big hit song from Hair was Aquarius, right? This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Some, some older people, in spite of my dad singing at the moment, um, will remember that kind of tune from the late 60s. And so, yeah, in, in terms of the, the, the astrological view of things, Western astrology, the earth moves through these grand cycles, each of them lasting about 2000 years or so. And the transition from one to the other, of course, is very gradual. All of our transitions in the world are gradual. We we look back and we put these divisions on history, but you know we say you know for example in in the history of of music right we have these different musical ages and we say okay the the classical area uh, the classical era runs from you know 1750 to you know 1820. Well, people didn't wake up January 1st 1750 and, and say. Oh, we're now in the Baroque era is over and now we're in the classical era. No, no, this was this was a very gradual thing. And only in retrospect do we look back and say, well, you know what? <laughs> and that that particular one is dated to the to the death of Bach and the death of Handel, both in 1850 or 1750. Sorry. Um, you know, we look back and we say, well, you know, about this time, there was a noticeable change in the style of music, but it, it happens very gradually. So as we move from one astrological age into another, it's a very, very gradual move. So even in the 60s, people were talking about the ending of the age of Pisces and the beginning of the age of Aquarius. Well, this transition happens over a period of centuries, not 
not days, not weeks, not months, and not even years. So we can perceive it that way. And in the 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 Aquarian age, where we will move into sort of a, de a decline of organized religion, and in its place arise in sort of a personal spirituality and a, uh, you know a more a more personal um, spiritual journey, spiritual connections, spiritual all this sort of thing. It, it will become less sort of religion and more spirituality. And over the course of my lifetime, we've heard this term, you know, spiritual and spirituality become more and more commonly used. Back in the in the 50s and 60s, you almost, even in, in the 70s, you, you rarely heard that term. So um, every sort of uh, religious tradition has this, uh, well, almost every, I should say, religious tradition has this idea of ages. In the Hindu tradition, they have the, the, the great ages, right? And we're in the Kali Yuga in the Hindu tradition. Um, many people in sort of what's called the New Age movement, which is a, a terrible, um, a terrible name, and it includes like everything gets thrown in there. <laughs> that uh, you know, very uh, even opposing ideas and, and and philosophies and stuff get thrown into that rubric. But you know, in the kind of the New Age in general, there's this understanding that we are going through a spiritual awakening. Some people call it an ascension. Um, some people of sort of the more traditionalist uh, Christian view uh, look at this as the uh, the time spoken of in the book of Revelation. Um, and so th there's many different ways of of perceiving this, of understanding it, of uh, of looking at it. And I, I don't I don't know if one is right and, and others are wrong or if all of them have a little piece of the truth. But there is some sort of uh, a spiritual change going on on the planet. And um, the, it is uh, playing out. And I think that's one of the reasons why these uh, people, whoever they are, are in such a hurry now to try to get their agenda accomplished. Because I, I think they're up against this, this spiritual change, this energetic change that if they don't get their control system in place soon enough, it will be overwhelmed. And and that's what we have. It's almost like, you know, it, we, it, there's analogies, of course, between spiritual wars and, and physical wars, at least some analogies. And, you know, we can compare this, for example, with um, with various wars, for example, the, the war between the states, the American Civil War, where the South had to win quickly. They could not sustain a long war. Uh, the North, uh, could sustain a long war. They had the industrial capacity to sustain a long war. So the longer the war went on, uh, the the more uh, sure was the eventual defeat of the South. And the same is true with the Second World War, right? Once the United States entered the war with the industrial capacity of the United States, they could sustain a long war. And the longer the war went on, the greater would be the American production of war material and all the rest of it. So once that happened, Germany and Japan had to win quickly. And if they didn't win quickly, their ultimate ultimate defeat became inevitable. And I think in a spiritual sense, we're up against the same thing. I mean, those of us who are fighting, or who are in this spiritual battle, spiritual war uh, for, you know, all the things on our side, shall we say, without being specific, um, time is on our side. And um, it, it eventually we will win as long as we don't lose quickly.
Interesting. Okay. And describe for us, please, Donald, uh, the ramifications that humans have both a higher divine nature as well as a lower animal nature. Yeah, yeah that's, I. you know, I, I do talk about that. That's that's one way of viewing. And, and I kind of look at that in chapter one of the book where I try to explain, okay, whatever your religious background is or your spiritual understanding, you, you can look at this in terms that are meaningful to you or that you know that that resonate with you and and that's that's one it's a bit of a simplistic understanding that we that we are both like our bodies we understand that our bodies are an animal body right our not anatomy there's a certain resemblance to, to other animals you know almost all mammals have shoulders and hips and a spine and all this kind of stuff right and a stomach and heart and lungs and 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 also our physiology uh, is very you know similar especially to some particular animals that whose physiology is very very similar to humans and so you know we have an animal body in a sense but we also understand that we have a higher nature we often call it our soul or our spirit and this is our divine nature this is this is the, the way in which we are created in the image and likeness of god Right. I mean, even Jesus said, no, you know, God is spirit and you must worship him in spirit. And it's it's our spirit or our soul that was created by God and in the image and likeness of God. So we are, in a sense, right, a a a divine spiritual being fused with you know, an animal body. And the more we sort of emphasize our animal nature, the more we degrade ourselves, the more we become animalistic. And the more we focus on our higher nature, our spiritual nature, the more we sort of spiritualize ourselves in a sense, the more we become divine in a sense. And in the Eastern traditions, of course, of the, the energy centers in the body or the chakras, right, which we count seven major uh, chakras in our body, like the lower three are very much associated with our animal nature. And the, the upper chakras are very much associated with our spiritual nature. And in the middle, the fourth chakra is the heart chakra. And, and I kind of say like that's, that's the pivot between our animal nature and our divine nature. And the, right now, and historically, you know, humans and the whole world has been largely focused on the lower three chakras, which basically the, the first one that deals with survival, the second one deals with like you know reproduction and sex the third one deals with a uh, power and social relationships and status and that sort of thing like th that's where we're focused on every you know you you talk the whole idea of geopolitics right is all about power it's about political and military power in the world and what we need to do both individually and and as a whole as a collective as a species is that we need to shift our focus up. We need to raise our consciousness from the third chakra, which is focused on power, to the fourth chakra, which is focused on love. And when we come to, to focus on love, then rather than seeing other people in the world as enemies and as threats, as we would if we're looking at it in terms of power relationships, and, and, and when, we, when we look through the eyes of the heart, we might say through the through the heart chakra, we see that everyone is a brother and a sister. We're all one in spirit. And then we see that everyone in the world is is um, is in a sense 
uh, an individual um, or individualized expression of God. And we are all one. And everyone else, there, there are no enemies. There are only friends we haven't met yet. And then we take a different approach to other people in the world. We don't fear them. We love them. And these are the two great spiritual uh, opposites, fear and love. We often think that the opposite of love is maybe hatred or something. But hatred is a child of fear. The opposite of fear is love, which is exactly why Jesus says, uh, you know, throughout the Bible, this is one of the most repeated terms and, you know, expressions in the Bible is there's nothing to fear. And St. John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And that's exactly how we overcome fear is through, uh, you know, is through focusing on love. That's what casts out fear. A kind of a long answer to a short no, question, no, that's, Michael. That's, that, that was, I mean, this, this, I think, is an important part. And um, attached to these, then, are also the concepts of light versus dark and fear versus love. Um, and you, you've, you've touched on the fear versus love. This light versus dark, I mean, this is really sort of, I guess, the dichotomy between this, the spiritual ascension and the more materialistic or animal nature. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. When, when we use that as... A metaphor right light and dark we, we've used this as a spiritual metaphor for as long as we have had you know a spiritual uh, writings that we can look back to right the forces of light versus the forces of darkness and you know god is always you know however you conceive of god is always presented as light and you know evil however you characterize that whether it's satan or something else is is always characterized as darkness and so yes it's a great metaphor but you know I also think about these these things that what if they're not just metaphors? They might also be very literally true. And, you know, for example, in the Gospel of John, he says, you know, God is love. But what if that's not a metaphor? What if that he also means that literally? God is love and love is God. And so by by expressing love, by filling our own consciousness with love, that is how we join our consciousness with, with God's consciousness or what we might call the Christ consciousness. It's love. And then similarly with light, you know, we, we try to come up with like, what is God? And, and nobody has an adequate answer for that. It's like, it's almost like on our level of consciousness, we cannot possibly understand God. And I think all religions, uh, uh, teach this, although it tends to get glossed over. And we, but we often have a rather childish view of God, right? Like that somehow God is this old guy up in the clouds, you know, with long flowing white hair, looks a little bit like Charlton Heston. You know, but of course, of course, God, God is not like that at all. So what is God? What is the nature of God? Well, we don't know. In some sense, you know, well, Going back to my earlier comment, Jesus, Jesus said, you know, God is spirit. God does not have a physical presence, a physical manifestation. You know, we are meant to be the physical embodiment of God in the material world. And, you know, we often say we are the, Christ has no hands in the world today. We are the hands and feet of Christ. And that we are meant to, to allow Christ to work through us, to express through us. We are meant to be, in a sense, portals through which the light and love of God expresses and shines into the world. This, this is how we bring spirit into materiality. And this is how we, in a sense, spiritualize 
our own material existence, our own physical existence, our own body. We spiritualize it by uh, aligning ourselves with God. Anyway, I kind of got off there. So what if God is, so we conceive of God as being spirit. Well, what is spirit? I mean, I think people are starting to understand, well, maybe it's kind of like energy. Maybe it is a sort of an energy. And, you know, many people today talk about subtle energy as, a, you know, a form of energy that we haven't scientifically uh, come to, to an understanding of yet. My, one of my first experiences, for example, way back as a teenager was this, of this, was seeing a Curlian photography for the first time. Are, are you familiar with that? um that's the where essentially you can, you can you can view people's auras with that and i'm not sure exactly how it works but i believe that it does give you that um auric representation yes i mean it started off with this russian guy and his name was uh Kurlian or something like that and um he would take pictures of things and i can't remember exactly the technique he did to take photographs when i say pictures photographs but it wasn't normal uh, photographs with just the visible light spectrum. He was picking up uh, kind of parts of the electromagnetic uh, energy spectrum. And he could see these sort of auras around like the leaves of plants and things like that and 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 animals and people. And and uh, this became like, this is kind of a big deal back when I was, was young and it's sort of forgotten. I haven't heard anything about it for decades, but that was sort of my first um, introduction to the fact, that, oh, well, there really is some sort of energy, whether it's electromagnetic energy uh, from living things. And you could, you could there even, you could take a leaf off a tree, for example, and tear it in half and take a picture of, you know, just half. And in the picture, you would see this sort of the energetic outline of the whole leaf as, as if the sort of the energy structure of the whole leaf was there even though half of the physical leaf was missing and the same thing with people you could take sort of a, a curly and photograph of people who are you know amputees that had a limb cut off and the the sort of the energy signature of the missing limb would still be there and um so this was my first introduction to the idea that that there is uh that our soul or our spirit or something about living things there is a subtle energy that our scientific understanding hasn't really figured out what that is yet. And maybe this is what we call our soul. And there are also today people who understand these things, you know, in far more detail, this sort of psychics or intuitive people who perceive things on a spiritual or psychic level that I don't, I'm not psychic. Um, that they say that we actually have have multiple bodies. We have our physical body. There's an emotional body, an astral body, an etheric body, a mental body, etc. That there are in fact seven different bodies in in different sort of um, uh, ways or in different sort of dimensions. But that we as humans are all of these. So we got off at this talking about well, our animal nature and our and our our divine or spiritual natures, and it, you know it's very possibly far more complex than we think it is uh but the more we focus on our higher things and jesus has said the same thing and we see this in the gospel many times right he says you know keep your mind on things of god not not on the things of this world because you know that if your focus is entirely on the on the material things of this world on as in the eastern tradition they would say on the lower three chakras you will we will be consumed by them
they're, they're, th this is what addictions are to physical things, right? And we can get addicted to all the physical things. We have addictions to food, addictions to sex, addictions to alcohol, addictions to drugs, addictions to money, addictions to power. There are addictions to all of these things in the physical level. They are ultimately, it, these are desires are ultimately insatiable. And if we, if our focus remains there, we will be consumed by them both individually and collectively as a society and as a species. We see this with individual addicts, with alcoholics, with, with drug addicts, with people who are addicted to gambling. They ultimately like destroy themselves through this addiction. And we must rise above that or we will consume ourselves as a species. So that then relates to the concept of self-control and free will. Um, and I guess the opposite of that, which is the concept of controlling others. Um, how does this concept intertwine with the concepts that we've just discussed? Uh, in, in every way, on every level, right? <laughs> you know, life and these things are like onions, right? You, get, you peel off one layer, you think, oh, I found the real onion. You peel off another layer, oh, there's another layer underneath and another layer underneath. Yeah, so... Um, Free will is, is so, so important. We, we forget this, that God gives us all free will. I mean, understanding this in a spiritual way, God gives us free will. And we often say, oh, why did God do this? Or why did God let this happen? God lets everything happen. That's the whole idea behind free will. He has given us free will. You can do whatever you want, but you know, whatever you do, there's consequences to every action. In fact, there's consequences to every thought, to every word we speak, and to every action we take or don't take. So there's consequences to everything. And we get to see, this one of the, one of the reasons I think that we have time in this dimension, is we get to see the consequences of our actions play out in time, right? So we can, we can say, oh, yeah, I didn't like that consequence. That didn't work out very well. I won't do that again. This is how we learn about everything, even about spiritual things and about spiritual truth. And we get we get to see in our own lives, you know, what what happens when we express love in our relationships and are dealing with other people's. What happens when we express fear or anger or hatred or power? You know, like different things play. There's different consequences. So uh, this is this is you know, free will is so important now. God gives us free will. You know, it's, it's been said that God is the force that never forces. We can do whatever we want. He lets us do whatever we want. That's free will. And that, but there are consequences and we get to experience the consequences of our own actions. Now, if, and this is an essential part of being human, of humanity. And to the extent that we deny free will to others, we actually set ourselves against God, against the intentions of God, and we set ourselves up by as dehumanizing others. You know, those of us who are parents, and probably many of our listeners are parents, you know, we know that as we bring up our children, you know, we gradually want to kind of help them learn what the consequences of their actions are. And at some point, you know, they will reach adulthood where we no longer control them anymore. We set them free to 
have their own experiences of the world and their own experiences of the consequences of their own actions. And at some point this happens. I mean, for us, it was when our kids kind of hit 18. I mean, for, for years, my wife said, and it was only half joking, you know, when you graduate from high school, you get a suitcase and a library card, move out. And if we forgot to tell you anything, read about it. You know, it's your time <laughs> to go out and suffer the consequences of your own actions in life and figure out how that works. At some point, this is what it is to be adult. So if we constrain the free will of other adults, we are in a sense reducing their humanity. We are in a sense um, constraining them to be something less than human. And this is exactly, okay, so switching from kind of the, the spiritual aspect of this to the very material, and in this case, political aspect of it, this is exactly what totalitarianism attempts to do. It attempts to exert total control over people. That's why it's called totalitarianism, is it's not just political control, it's total control. And the, the, um, the great writer on totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt, says that totalitarianism must ultimately control reality itself. And we see that happening in our world today. We see that those who are those who are in charge are attempting to control reality, or at least to control our perception of reality. That's what censorship is all about. Oh, you know, you dumb people, you're not you're not smart enough to be able to handle the truth. We have to decide for you what information you're able to be exposed to, and you know what we're going to protect you for your own good. No, no, this is this is. Um, this is exerting control over other adults, which is, you know, a projection of power over others. Whereas all true spiritual traditions teach self-control, power over self, self-discipline, not the control of others. You must allow others to be free to then develop their own self-control. And of course, within society, we, we have to have... Um, uh, we do impose some kind of consequence as a society for those that uh, like really go astray. We can't allow people just to just go around murdering each other. Like this leads to chaos. We have learned this as a species. We can't have that. We can't just have people go, you know, stealing other people's stuff. This leads to chaos as a society and it leads to a, a, a breakdown in the social order. So yes, we do have laws. Right. We and and there are consequences in our society if you if you you know break these fundamental laws. But you know what we're seeing today is not just the it's not the rule of law at all. Um, it, it's 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 complete totalitarianism. What's going on in our world today? And this is this is uh, destructive on a physical level, and it's destructive on a spirit. It's destructive on every level that you want to look at it. Yes, for sure. Now, your description of the consequences, um, to me, the word karma kept springing into my mind. Would, would you agree that the two are, are interrelated? Exactly. And this this is a term and an understanding that comes from the Eastern religions, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. It, it's not something, it's not a term that's accepted in the Western uh, monotheistic traditions, but the same idea is there. Okay, in 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 other words, you know, with within uh, Judaism and Christianity, uh, that that 
you will experience the consequences of your actions. Yes, yes. So although there's many, I found the following passage to be one of the most profound passages in your book. And I'll read it out here. Quote, there is hope. We can still escape to freedom. A war is being waged against us with fear. We must respond with love, the opposite of fear. In this spiritual war, our strategy is love, our tactic is forgiveness, and our weapon is nonviolent, non-cooperation. Could you please unpack this statement for us? <laughs> Certainly, I'd love to, Michael. There's a lot there, actually. Um, so, uh, we're, we're in a spiritual war. I think many of your listeners probably recognize that. But of course, uh, in part because everything is fundamentally spiritual. Everything spring, springs from spiritual reality, but everything manifests in physical reality. That's that's I think you know precisely why we're here in this physical experience of, of of the physical world because we see spiritual truth manifest in physical reality. <clears throat> so um, we're in a spiritual war. But one thing that most people don't understand about spiritual wars is that they're always fought within. It is the eternal battle of good versus evil within ourselves. And Alexander many ways, uh, many times in many ways, that he said that I found that the line which divides good from evil runs through every human heart. And so it does. The, the spiritual war is not a battle against anything outside ourselves. The physical war is against things outside ourselves. But we understand that, that, that it's fundamentally spiritual and it's fundamentally a struggle within ourselves. And that struggle is always to choose between the two great spiritual opposites, love or fear. Now, it, particularly with this COVID thing in the last almost three years now, we've seen that people are trying to control us with fear, right? They're trying to, oh, make us afraid. Oh, you're, everybody's going to die if you don't do this. You have to do exactly as you're told. Wear the mask, stay in your house, do all this stuff, get the jab, all these things. We're, 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 we're fear is being used against us. And, and this is important. You understand, if someone was trying to make you fearful, they're trying to control you and and our response if we respond with fear so so this is a large part of of the spiritual battle within ourselves because our natural human response is to respond instinctively to others the way they act towards us right so when someone uh, uh, acts towards us in anger our instinctive response is to respond with anger Right? If someone acts towards us with violence, our instinctive response is to respond with violence. And this, this is sort of the, the way we are being tempted to kind of to revert or descend into our lower nature. The challenge that each one of us have within ourselves is to respond to these, to fear, to anger, to hatred, to all these things, to respond to them with love. And that's very difficult. That requires self-control. That's exactly the point. And the more we can respond with love and maintain a consciousness of love within ourselves, the more the attacks with fear, anger, hatred, all this kind of stuff, the more those attacks will simply be futile. Interesting. That's a very, very so, powerful statement. 
Yeah, so our strategy is love. Our tactic is forgive. Now, okay, so, and, and I do uh, go to some extent, especially in the final chapter, which comes back to, uh, to you know, looking at things in a spiritual way again. I do go to some extent to try to explain wh what, what I mean by love. What is love? Because most of us don't really understand love. And of course, this word love is used to mean many very different things. We even hear, you know, people who use love to describe sexual perversion today, which is, you know, love is not sex. These are very different things. Ideally, they're, they're, they're associated, right, when, you know, with your spouse, but, but they're very different things. So, you know, and the Greeks, of course, had at least three words for love. Right. And so what what I'm what I'm meaning when I say love is not eros, the Greek word for uh, for sexual love or physical love. You know, it's it's what what the Greeks word is agape, which is a universal love, a brotherly love. And we are also probably most of our listeners are, are familiar with the term tough love. Right. L love being loving is not being a doormat is not allowing people to do anything to you. That's not love, okay? So sometimes love is tough love, right? So in that, that love forgives, but love does not remove consequences. And we understand this with our children, right? As their children are growing up, you know, we often need to apply, you know, sort of somewhat arbitrary, we call it discipline, right? Arbitrary consequences say, you know, if you do that, you're going to, you know, I'm going to send you to your room or, you know, whatever the arbitrary consequences might be. We try to make the consequences as natural as possible, right? But, you know, with little kids, there's a certain degree of arbitrariness. And, you know, you might get a, a swat on your bum or something like that if, you know, if you don't behave properly. So, um, and, and love, does, it doesn't mean now that you're, your, your mother hates you or your father hates you. No, no, I still love you, but there's a consequence for your actions and I'm not going to remove the consequence. L love does not remove consequences, but love forgives. So yes, there's a consequence. You might get a spanking, but I still love you and I forgive you, you know? <laughs> Tomorrow's a new day, we start over. You know, we don't, we don't have to go back there. I'm not going to kind of constantly bring up, I remember that time you broke the window with your, you know, you threw the ball through the window. I'm never going to forgive you for that. No, no, it's not that at all. No, we're going to forgive you. This is a childhood thing. There's a consequence, okay? You know, we're going to pay for the window out of your allowance, however long, whatever the consequence is. But we don't remove the consequence, but I still love you. And I'm going to forgive you for that. So, yes, we have forgiveness. But, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, some deep state operative came up with this article and I think it was the Atlantic or something like that. They said, oh, let's have amnesty for all these COVID crimes. No, no, amnesty is something completely different. OK, it, if you've committed a crime, there are consequences for that in whatever you know jurisdiction you're in. You, you know, this is appropriate that you face the consequences for your criminal actions. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to, uh, you know, like harbor anger and hatred towards. I don't want that. We for, uh, forgiveness is not a gift we give to someone else. Forgiveness is a gift we give to ourselves so that we are free. We are not consumed with anger and hatred for the rest of our lives. I don't want that consciousness. I want to live in a consciousness of love. And so I'm going to forgive. And you know, you will still suffer whatever consequence. You might go to jail for a long time if you've committed murder. Uh, 
but I, I'm not going to hate you for the rest of my life. I'm going to be fill myself with the consciousness of love. That's what forgiveness is about. And then, and then our response. So our strategy is love. Our tactic is forgiveness. And our weapon is nonviolent, non-cooperation. Non this is exactly what Gandhi did. And, and you know what? If we simply don't cooperate with evil, if we don't cooperate with lies, if we refuse to accept the lies that are around and say, no, that's a lie. <laughs> Stop doing that. Or no, I'm not going. That's based on a lie. What you're saying is not true. I'm not going to go along with that. And so, you know, if we simply don't cooperate with lies, with evil, with illegality, with criminality, then this whole system will collapse. If people, you know, even even a significant minority, right? If 25% of people refuse to wear the masks, you, like you can't, I, I say, you know, one person will be arrested, you know, 10 people will be ticketed, but 10,000 people, 100,000 people, all of this is impossible, right? If 25% of people everywhere, everywhere in our society said, no, I'm not wearing a stupid mask. There's no science behind it. No, I'm not getting that job. If 25% if of people even refuse to go along with this stuff, they, they could never enforce it. It's so, only when a, a tiny number so refuse that, to go along. They can be isolated. So that's a very important point. And I want to just jump forward here. And you, know, you bring up the concept of mass formation psychosis, which uh, I... Uh, through my readings, thought was sort of a new term that Matthias Desmond had or had had brought to life, which I understand probably came more through Robert Malone. And clearly, this is a uh, concept which has existed for much longer than simply the COVID era. And you make the you make the, the statement that the results of a mass formation psychosis tend to be rather consistent with 30% of the population belonging to the true believer category, 40% uh, sense something is wrong but knew no, do nothing about it. And 30% become rebels, but never seem to coalesce into a unified group. <clears throat> now, on this latter point, that is something that myself and other leaders within the dissenting crowd have witnessed and discussed and tried to figure out a pathway forward. So why do you think the numbers present this way? And, you know, if we only have 30% in this true believer category, how do we, uh, the 30% which understand what's going on, how do we share our knowledge uh, with the other parties or, or that middle 40%, bring them into the side of, of non-compliance and, and more onto the rebel side. What's the pathway forward there? Uh, the short answer, I think, Michael, is exactly what we're doing. I mean, your, your, your podcast and my book and us talking about it uh, publicly, that, that's, that's exactly how we do it. At least that's the beginning of it. But I, I would like to clarify a couple of points that you started out with. The, the idea, as far as I know, does come from Professor Matthias Desmond in Belgium. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Ghent in Belgium. And, and this, this is his area of specialization, this group psychological phenomenon that he calls mass formation. And this was a new term to me. Well, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an expert in anything. So... When I first heard him on a podcast, by the way, over a year ago, this connected a lot of dots in my mind. And, you know, you you mentioned the term mass formation psychosis. And I unfortunately have used it, the term in that way in a couple of places in my book as well. And I regret that because after uh, the book already went to press, I, I did hear him on another interview saying, 
I don't know who added this term psychosis. He said, it's not a psychosis. He said, I, I, I never said that. He said, it's not a psychosis. Psychosis is something different. Mass formation is mass formation. Psychosis is a different thing altogether. And these terms should not be put together. So I try now to, to simply talk about mass formation. Even though in the book, in a couple of places, it does appear it, it, the, the term as mass formation cycles. It's mass formation. It's a group psychological phenomenon. It, also known as crowd formation. Because it came out, the, the understanding came out of the study of crowd behavior. And I think everybody, uh, not all of our listeners might be familiar with Matthias Desmond and this term mass formation. So let me just touch on it a bit. It comes out of the study of crowd behavior. And all of us have experienced this to some extent. For example, even like a gang of boys will do things that none of the boys would ever have done individually. I've been, you know, when I was a kid, I, I sometimes was a part of gang of boys and we did stuff that I would never have done all by myself. You know, you, you get kind of wrapped up in this and one, you know, and, and afterwards, you know, even as a kid, afterwards i sometimes thought why did i do that you know like that that was unkind destructive whatever the stupid things we do as boys and and even as adults so you know i've looked back on things that i've done as an adult i said how did i get caught up in that like i would never have done that on my own so something happens when we get in groups absolutely and so this is what this this psychological kind of study comes out of what's going on with groups of people how does it work um and so matthias desmond this has been the focus of his particular research as a psychologist and he says that that what happens is it is it all well i won't go into a lot of detail but there's certain conditions that must be met in a society before mass formation can take hold one of the key things is there has to be a lot of of what he calls free-floating anxiety. People are anxious about stuff and they don't know why. Let me give you just a personal uh, kind of example of this because it's hard to understand. You know, in the in the last few years of my teaching experience, you know, from time to time, our administrators, the principal and vice principals and stuff would remind the teachers and staff meetings and stuff. And this is, you know, like during, you know, 28, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, those kind of years. It would remind the teachers, you know, you know, go easy on the students. They're under a, a lot of stress. A lot of students are, are have a lot of anxiety. And I often thought, what are you talking about? Like these kids have nothing to be anxious about. Like this, like, like there's no great, uh, you know, disastrous threats in the world. I mean, in, in the late 60s and early 70s, we had this this fear about uh, you know, nuclear war destroying the whole world. And, and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, like this was quite a real fear and a somewhat realistic one. But nowadays, like during, you know, 2015, like what the heck? What, what are they anxious about? And they're not overworked. Heck, you know, look back to what I did in high school. Most high school kids nowadays don't, don't do half of what I did. You know, so like, what are you talking about? How can there be all this anxiety and i think a lot of it comes from all the screen time and all, all the social media stuff this this creates a huge amount of anxiety but nonetheless the point is that there was a there is 
a lot of anxiety. These kids are anxious, even though it made no sense to me at the time. That there's anxiety, you know, people have it that we don't realize. So that's what he's meaning by free-floating anxiety. So what happens then is somebody comes along, an authority figure, with a story, a narrative that that explains anxiety, that is that allows people to, that says, this is why we have all these problems. It's this thing. And people are able to kind of focus their anxiety on that, what he calls an object of anxiety. And for example, in Hitler, it was the Jews and the bankers and things like that. It's the Jews' fault. They're doing all this stuff. Oh, yeah. And people kind of got together and people are able to come together. Kind of social dislocation is an important other uh, precondition. So people are able to come together and form a kind of a social bond. And it gives them meaning and purpose in their life as they join together in this in this noble struggle against the object of anxiety. So nowadays, it's things like climate change. Oh, yeah, we got to fight against climate change. You know, or whatever the the virus we got to fight or terrorism we got to fight against terrorism. It's all the, the these become objects of anxiety that people are then able to direct their anxiety uh, towards, engage in this struggle that that produces a sense of purpose and and uh, kind of social cohesion and produces a kind of a mental intoxication, and then. You know, they're, they're willing to go along with and follow the course of action that's presented by the authority figure. It's okay, we need to do this. We need to separate the Jews into their own areas because they carry diseases and we don't want to be sick. You know, same thing. I mean, what went on, what's went on with the COVID stuff is just exactly like Hitler did with the Jews. There's so many parallels between, you know, the Nazism in the 1930s Germany and what's going on in the whole world today. So then, they go along with this, right? And essentially what, what these ideas are is an ideology. And Matthias Desmond says that usually it's a quasi-scientific ideology. For example, Hitler used, and all of the totalitarian regimes have come about this way, through an ideology that creates mass formation that leads to totalitarianism. And, and uh, Hitler, for example, it was... Um, it was um, a eugenic race theory, right? Oh, and uh, kind of a social Darwinism. So there was this sort of quasi-scientific social theories that weren't true at all, right? They're always presented as being modern and scientific and progressive, when in fact, th they're none of this. Uh, they're ultimately, they're scientific nonsense. Then people go along with, uh, with the, the creeping totalitarianism. So this is how totalitarianism comes into place. But you talked about the different divisions. So Matthias Desmond says that how this breaks down in a society is amazingly uh, consistent from one episode to another, right? The Bolshevik revolution in Russia, the, the fascists in Italy, the Nazis in, in um, Germany, and every other one, right? The Pol Pot in Cambodia, all of these places where totalitarian regimes have come into place. It's, it's an ideology that leads to mass formation, that leads to totalitarianism. And then I, I take this a few steps further than what Matthias Desmond says, it always leads to mass murder. And there's, there's both spiritual and, and psychological reasons for that. So he says that about 30% about of people are caught up in this mass formation. Right. 
they become like true believers. They think, oh yeah, we got to do this. And they go along, right? About another 30% realize something's wrong. Hold on, this doesn't make sense. And they speak up against it. Those are like the rebels. And then the other 40%, you know, think there's something wrong. It doesn't really quite make sense to them, but they go along. They don't speak up against it. They, they go along, okay, I'll wear the mask, whatever, I'll get the shot, I'll do this, I want to visit my kids, I want to go to Florida, whatever, so I'll take, I'll take the shot. They go along with it, even though it doesn't seem right to them. And so Matthias Desmond says that, that this 30% of rebels are, are a very diverse group, different ages, different backgrounds, different professions or occupations, different education levels. They've never been able to come together as a unified group. And I think one of the great strengths we have is we have the, the kind of digital communication technology today that we can draw this group of rebels together. And this is happening. Now, can it happen quickly enough? That's, that's the question. But Matthias Desmond says, if that 30% of rebels had been able to come together and to bring with them the 40% of the kind of fence sitters, right? They're sitting on the fence and they don't think it's right, but they're going along anyway. If you could bring those 40% of fence sitters with, with them, the, the whole, the whole mass, psycho, uh, mass formation would collapse. And this is similar to what Solzhenitsyn said. If you simply stop going along with the lies, the whole thing will collapse. It will disintegrate. And so that's, that's, our, that's our mission right? To bring together the 30% of rebels who are willing to speak up and to try to convince as many as we can of the 40% of fence sitters that, look, come, you, you can you see where this is going now. Now that we understand this process, you see where it's going. So that's, that's our mission. Your mission and my mission, Michael, is to, is to bring people together who realize this isn't right and we're going in a bad direction. Interesting. Interesting. So are we at a point then when we really, we're, this, this choice before us is a real one before rebirth and catastrophe? Yes. Yes. I think, I mean, human civilization has rarely been like this. And, and I think we're, we're going through something in human civilization, which we have never gone through before in recorded history. And um, it, it, it is exceedingly dramatic and um, like unknowable, really. It's impossible for us to know what the outcome will be. But I think we have uh, two choices. It's left or right. It's light or dark. Uh, you either, you, you were on a road. <laughs> like there's no middle road anymore. Through my whole life, there has always been a middle road, right? It's always been, the, well, let's, let's not go to the extremes. Let's kind of take the moderate middle road. I don't think this is possible anymore. You cannot sit on the fence. Like the 40% the of fence sitters in Nazi Germany, uh, they were the, like, because you know this, this, this little expression, this idea, well, just go along. If you read histories of Germany in the 1930s, this was so common, right? People would say, yeah, these Nazis are crazy, but you know what, just go along with them. Like, it, like it, it's not gonna work out well to, to go against these people, just go along with them. And that's what we're told now. Just go along. Like, even if it doesn't make sense to you to wear a mask, just go along with it. We, we cannot go. And, and we saw in Nazi Germany where, where this went. 
you can't just go along. You cannot say, it's like we're, we're dealing in, in a very real sense in terms of psychology, we're dealing with psychopaths, right? You cannot simply appease a psychopath um, in, into like, no, it doesn't work. You will be consumed by this. You will be destroyed by the psychopath if you try to go along. You you must get away from this. You must go in a different direction. And as individuals and as a society, we will either go towards this, you know, uh, psychopath, sociopath, totalitarian slavery, or we will go towards freedom, personal responsibility, personal independence. You know, this, these are our choices. You'll go left or right. There is no middle road anymore. I'm quite convinced of that. And you've also said that no one is coming to save you. Can you unpack this statement for us? Well, yeah. So, you know, uh, probably everyone listening to, to your podcast has heard some of these things about, oh, the white hats, right? There's white hats in the U.S. government, you know, and they're, they're going to kind of appear and take over the black hats and, and and also like this is some christians who think oh you know jesus this is this is the the second coming jesus is going to return and kill all the bad guys and and save all the good guys and those of us that's not how it works that's not what's happening you know and and in a spiritual level that's exactly why god has given us free will god is not going to come and save us no god that's not how it works god has given us the tools we have to make the choices. God has given us the options, the instructions for salvation. He's put the tools for salvation into our hands. It's up to us. Maybe there are white hats and black hats in the US government. I don't know, but that's not what's going to save us. And if we go back to the understanding of mass formation, see, you you can't simply remove the bad guys and make everything good, right? If somebody had managed to assassinate Hitler, that wouldn't have ended uh, uh, totalitarianism. You know, Goering would have taken his place or Bormann would have taken, or somebody, you know, who the, the deputy Fuhrer would have stepped in. It, you know, that would have, would not have changed anything. When, when Lenin died in the Soviet Union, well, Stalin took his place. That's not how totalitarianism ends. And, um, Matthias Desmond says that, that, that totalitarianism does not arise by simply a bunch of bad guys taking control. It arises because an ideology has taken control of a significant minority of, of the minds of people in the society. The only way, short of complete destruction, as what is what the complete destruction that happened in Nazi Germany at the, by the end of the Second World War, short of complete destruction, the only way to end totalitarianism is by, is by dismantling the ideology that created it. And every one of us has to do that. This is something that exists in the minds of people. It's a psychological phenomenon at its root. And I say a spiritual phenomenon, even before it's a psychological one. We must change it at that level. And we change that one person at a time. One person deciding to change their own consciousness from fear to love. One person deciding to say, well, you know, maybe this doesn't make sense. Maybe, maybe I'll listen to what these guys have to say about 
you know, what's really going on, right? It's, it's one person at a time. That's, that's how we do it. And the statement, um, which I'm sort of paraphrasing here, that we're all infinite reflections of the same consciousness, and we can never correct evil by condemn, condemning your brother or sister. You must, must replace love with your own heart. So is this the new type of thinking that we need to adopt? And this is what we're, this is what will save us from a disastrous end. Uh, yes, th this, this is fundamentally the spiritual truth behind all, behind all, all real religions, right? As I said, this, the spiritual battle is always fought within. It's the battle between evil and love within our own hearts. Like you, you can never change another person. I try to make this point very clearly and repeatedly throughout the book. We can only change ourselves. We do not have the power to change another person by trying to exert our power over another one to change them. We only terrorize them. We cannot change them. And this is at the root of totalitarianism. This is why totalitarianism is constant terrorism. This is one of the reasons why it leads to constant mass murder is because totalitarian regimes are constantly trying to force everyone in the whole society into a certain mode and they must control people. They must control their actions and their thoughts. They must try to control reality itself. And, and it ties into, and I'll touch on it now, even though I, I know I've been giving very long answers. So the, the final step that I add on to the understanding of Matthias Desmond and, um, and mass formation leading to, tel to totalitarianism, a, a, key a, a key point about the object of anxiety, right? We're all led to, to focus our anxieties on an object of anxiety. One of the things I've noticed is the object of anxiety in every case is something that does not exist in material reality. Now, this, this is maybe a strange idea to, to many people, and nobody talks about this. I don't understand why. It is so fundamental and so important. We must be able to clearly distinguish what exists in material reality and what does not exist in material reality. For example, thoughts, ideas exist only in our minds. We know this. This is not material. And even things like a theory is a system of thoughts, is a system of ideas. A theory does not exist in material reality, right? Theories are attempts to explain what we observe in material reality, but the theory itself does not exist in material reality. This might seem a little airy-fairy, but it's so, it's so important. Now, the same thing goes, and, and philosophers have understood this for thousands of years. A category only exists in our minds. I use the example in the book of chairs. I'm sitting on a chair. You're sitting on a chair. Everyone understands what a chair is. There are billions of chairs in the world. But the category that we call chairs, the category itself does not have a material existence. Only the individual members of that category have a material existence. The category is a mental construct is an idea, is a concept. It exists only in our minds. And we can never destroy anything that does not exist in material reality. The chair I'm sitting on is a wooden chair. I could take it, break it into pieces, light it on fire and destroy this chair. 
this individual chair that exists in materiality. I can destroy it, but I can never destroy the category that we call chairs. It does not exist in material reality. Just like Hitler, you know, he, he made this object of anxiety that he called the Jews, right? But you can never destroy the Jews. It's a category. But you can kill individual Jews, individual people, if you call them Jews. And that's what happened. We destroy individual people. We murder our brothers and sisters because we call them by a certain label. And the label itself doesn't exist in material reality. The same thing happened with the Bolsheviks, right? You can call people, you cannot destroy the bourgeoisie, but you can murder individual people if you call them bourgeoisie. You can never destroy, right? The you can never destroy racism, but you can kill individual people if you call them racists. It's exactly why we have this war on racism it's exactly why we have all of these wars their ideology their ideologies that create mass formation that focus people to fight against something that does not exist in material reality but in the process we are going to destroy all sorts of things including people that do exist in material reality we will never destroy climate change it's an idea but we can destroy, <laughs> we can destroy our productive capacity for, uh, you know, uh, for, for producing energy. And that's what we're doing. Yes. <laughs> and we yes. can destroy people. We can murder people if we call them carbon emitters or whatever name is going to be applied to people to, you know, restrict them increasingly and ultimately murder them. This is where this leads. That's why it leads to mass murder. And you can, I'm not sure even what question you asked me to get me onto this, but this is why mass formation leads to totalitarianism, always leads to mass murder, and the mass murder never ends until you either experience the complete destruction of the whole society, as happened with Germany after World War II, or you dismantle the ideology that created it. Our task is to start dismantling these ideologies. So thus, we are all then warriors of love, leaving the consciousness of fear behind us and moving into the consciousness of love. Absolutely. So that, that's, Absolutely. that's the, the role that the rebels, the, the dissenters need to embrace and, and champion. Yes. And, and on a, the, the, these are kind of talking about spiritual things. On a spiritual level, I think all of us also, under, probably all of us understand that we have an individual consciousness, but there is also such a thing that we call the collective consciousness. And so the only way we can change the collective consciousness is by changing our personal consciousness, because that's the only thing we can change. Once again, we cannot change others. We cannot change the consciousness of other people. We can only change our own consciousness. We need to raise our own consciousness. All of us have, even if this sounds like a strange, you know, airy-fairy idea, all of us have felt this. You know, you walk into a room where there's a group of people, you, you get a feeling, right? And, and all of us have felt this. You walk into a bar, right? You get a certain feeling. You walk into a church, you get a different sort of a feeling. And it's because of the collective consciousness of the people in that place. So all of us have felt this. You walk into a party, 
<laughs> right? You can tell right off the bat whether everybody's happy or whether there's some only you walk into a like a social gathering, you just get this feeling like, what's going on in here? Like there's some like really strange vibes. So in the, back in the hippie days, right? We used to call it vibes. It very much is vibrations, right? Even that that song, I'm getting those good vibrations, right? There are vibes, there is vibrations. You walk into a social gathering, you get the sense that there's this some sort of undercurrent of hostility in the room. And you think, Ooh, I don't know, it just feels funny. What's going on in here with these people? You, we can feel it. Right? Everybody feels it in, in some way. And this is the, the consciousness of the people there and how how we and all of us affect that. Right. We've all been in a social gathering. We've been in a party where, you know, it's kind of a dull party. And all of a sudden this, you know, boisterous, often a, a woman. Right. This boisterous woman comes in. Oh, good. The life of the party has arrived. Right. The consciousness of that person affects the whole consciousness of the room and the, and the, the consciousness of the party changes. All of us have felt this sort of thing. And that's what we're trying to do in our own families, in our own little communities in the people that we meet day to day and ultimately in in our whole world even though we, you know we don't see people we don't understand that our consciousness somehow affects people on the other side of the planet in some way and i don't know how it works but in some way yes it does and the only consciousness we can change is our own the spiritual battle is always fought within yes so we, we spoke earlier on forgiveness and obviously forgiveness is going to transform and lead into healing. And during our most recent episode of, of Mayhem and Control, the COVID-19 era, many people have lost so much and been injured so badly by, by those in power. For those that have lost their jobs, their spouses, their children, their health, their parents, their life savings, friends, homes, lifestyles, respect and dignity, how can they transmute their grief and anger into forgiveness? And for example, how can you forgive a husband that took you to court to block you from preventing the vaccination of your children and ultimately obtain sole custody of them in the process? These are some very, very difficult uh, tasks and, and injuries that people have suffered to overcome and forgive. Give us some insight there, if you would. <laughs> oh, Michael, you're, you're asking quite a lot of me. <laughs> yes, you know what? This has is, this is torn us apart. Right. It has torn us apart internally. It has torn apart every family, every community, every workplace. It's tearing apart every nation. Um, and, and I'm quite convinced that this this is exactly the intention. Uh, this is intended to tear us apart, to set us against each other. And one thing to keep in mind is that whenever we lose something. There is trauma involved. Right, we even a, a loss of innocence, uh, a loss of a relationship, either through death or through the breakup of a marriage, or all of these things, a loss of a job, a uh, loss of a career. There is trauma involved, and I, I'm like I say, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm certainly not an expert in trauma. So, for for anyone who is suffering with this trauma, you know, I highly recommend seeking out people that are qualified to help people through trauma and heal trauma. But, you know, you mentioned, and I, I say in the book too, all healing comes through forgiveness. There is no healing without forgiveness. And none of us will heal from our trauma unless we are willing to forgive others and forgive ourselves. Okay, we often, well, we always, we always blame ourselves. 
uh, for things. At least a certain amount of blame is put on ourselves for things, even if we don't uh, admit it to other people, or even if we don't consciously admit it to ourselves, it's always there. And the blame, we, when we blame ourselves, we call it guilt. Right? We feel guilty for something because we're blaming ourselves for a certain thing. And uh, so once again, this touches on every aspect of our, of our humanness. It touches us on a spiritual level. And and to for, to move forward and and uh, and get beyond trauma, get beyond guilt and blame, we must forgive, right? We, um, I, I I'm not sure what else to say about that on a spiritual level or on a psychological level, but the same thing happens on the level of psychology, and there are people who are trained to help you get through this. But it, at least if everyone understands, okay, I'm going to have to forgive. And once again, to look at kind of through other people's eyes, walk a, a mile in, in your brother's moccasins. You know, the people that, that we are tempted to criticize, they are also being traumatized. The whole idea of the masks and of the fear is to traumatize people. And when I see people still wearing masks around, you know, I see they walk by my house walking their dogs, you know, nobody else around outside and they're wearing a mask. And my first reaction is to laugh at them. Like, didn't you get the memo, buddy? But, you know, I have to stop thinking, no, these, these people are traumatized. They're traumatized. They're living in fear. And they, um, you, you know what, I, they need our compassion. And uh, so it's, this is part of the battle, the spiritual battle within ourselves to look at these people with compassion, with forgiveness, with understanding, with patience, and uh, and to try to approach them with love. Even, and, and I know people too, uh, who have gone through what you just described in terms of marriages breaking up, right? The vaxxed versus the unvaxxed, and then take your children away, and, and I'm gonna vax the children, and um, you know, all this stuff. I, I know people who have had this. This is an extremely, traumatic experience and a very difficult thing to do. But if if we're to move forward from that, we must embrace forgiveness or you will never get by it. You will never free yourself to live in the consciousness of love until you forgive. Yes, yes. And then where does justice enter into this equation? For example, <laughs> some, some 20 years later, no one has been brought to justice for the crimes committed during the 9-11 debacle. Can we expect justice now? I I think, I mean, nobody knows the future. By definition, the, the future is unknown and everything about it is speculation. So I, I don't know. I think that the day will come when many of these criminals, these COVID criminals, will face the legal consequences for their crimes. I think. I could be wrong. Um, it's true. I mean, 9-11 and all the crimes there, no one has faced that. That still remains uh, an, an ideology. People are, are, you know, bought into the ideology. Many people, uh, many people don't believe it anymore, uh, but still go along uh, with the whole terrorism uh, fraud. And the same thing can be said of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Like this, this was planned. And I have a chapter on you know, financial and currency fraud in my book. And yeah, this this was, I think, uh, quite obviously planned and orchestrated. And uh, th there are people who committed many, many financial crimes. 
never been prosecuted for nobody went to jail for these crimes and when it's obvious to to people in the financial business and who have looked at this that there are all kinds of financial crimes committed so uh, there, there there will be people that have committed crimes and but you know like one thing I, i'm not a lawyer either but you know so many people right down to like your municipal politicians who enforced uh vaccine mandates uh, doctors who did this and and they will you know the vast majority of these people don't know they were part of a fraud and part of a crime they don't know they were committing crime but there's there's an important legal principle here and it's called a fiduciary duty and a fiduciary duty or a fiduciary responsibility is a duty that you hold because of your position of of trust fiduciary essentially means trust okay because of your specialized knowledge people trust you to know what you're doing and so doctors right who are giving people a jab and even forcing people and and you know coercing people to take the jab oh yeah this is good for you you got to do this you know some of these people will later say oh i didn't i didn't know it was actually a biological weapon i thought it was a legitimate vaccine problem for them is they have a fiduciary duty to know it's their job to know about the supposed medicines they're administering and they cannot escape legal responsibility for this by simply shrugging their shoulders and just saying oh sorry my bad it's all good now i didn't know you know it's a, it's the same way and municipal politicians the same way and they think oh well you know what we have you know liability insurance you know if we do you know you can't sue us right as a, as a politician uh for something problem is liability insurance does not cover criminal actions and and even when it comes to municipal school board officials right who forced everybody that all the employees in the school for example all the teachers and administrators and janitors and everybody to get this jab right if anybody's injured by that you're not going to be able to stand behind your liability insurance because at the very least i think this is assault and assault is a is a uh, criminal code infraction and so if any of these people are convicted of assault or any other criminal violation, your liability insurance is null and void. No insurance company in the world will insure you for criminal actions or criminal activity. And it's right in every, in every insurance contract you ever signed, it's right in there, right? Even your homeowner's insurance, you have insurance on your house. If you are using your house for criminal activity, your homeowner's insurance is null and void. So, right if you get convicted of a criminal offense even assault then your liability insurance is null and void and somebody's going to sue your ass off and it's a civil case so like there's a lot of things that are going to come out in the wash and this could happen could unfold over decades i was astonished for example in this uh, hash whatever it was called you know hashtag me too thing movement right where you know women went back decades and accused people of sexual assault or rape or something that had happened de decades ago. Well, just think of what people hold it. You murdered my mother. You know, <laughs> when people realize this, uh, th this will go on for decades, and we'll have you know, you know, doctors who are seventy years old who who committed this crime when they were thirty-five, 
and they're going to find themselves thrown in jail. It, it so yeah, these I think these criminal things are going to unfold over a long time. Yes. But yeah, you, yes. you you asked sorry, I I think I got off on a bit of a tangent. You asked about the the the, the always difficult question of uh, of forgiveness and justice. Where where is the balance of forgiveness and justice? And and it's a difficult balance to find. And you know, in a very kind of simplistic and surface manner, I think we can look at the at the question of criminality. So for, forgiveness is essentially a, a spiritual thing. This is this is a spiritual and psychological phenomenon. Is forgiveness. But if you've committed a crime, uh, this is this is a legal uh, issue that plays out in the material world. And yeah, there's there's an element of justice. You you need to to deal with the consequences of your actions. And if, if you acted in a criminal way, then we have laws to deal with that uh, through our criminal courts. If we can ever get uh, uh, our courts honest again, because it's quite obvious to most people that that our courts have no longer have anything to do with justice. Yes, agreed, agreed. And you've said that millions across the planet have abdicated their responsibility to, demo to democracy and have been going along with encroaching totalitarianism. What are some fundamental actions that people can take to find the courage to stand up and say no? What are some things that they have to reject and move away from? Oh, well, <clears throat> that's a that's a huge topic too, isn't it, Michael? You know, like we could break this down to a, a very personal level. As, for example, Solzhenitsyn did when he said, look, stop going along with lies. Um, most Most people go to work. And their employers have certain things that you must do. If you know, if your employers are forcing you, trying to force you to do things that are illegal, that are beyond the scope of your employment contract, you need to call them out on that, and simply stop going along. And and one of the, like, if your employer says, "Look, you you got to get this jab," says, "Hold it, no, uh, this is not part of our employment contract. You cannot make it part of our employment contract. This is, you know, I provide services for you. You pay me. Okay. I am not that you, you have no evidence that I'm a health risk to anybody. You have no evidence that this jab is, is a medical treatment at all. Okay. So this is an experimental uh, thing. You cannot force me to do this. And your attempt to force me is assault. And if you continue to assault me, I will charge you with assault or I'll charge you with whatever. So we need this. This is an element of fifth generation warfare, which perhaps we could get into at, at another time. But fifth generation warfare is being conducted against us. And it's perfectly legitimate for us to respond with some of the same fifth generation warfare tactics. And one of them is lawfare, law used as a weapon of war. So it's per perfectly legitimate for us to use law as a weapon of war against those who are using it against us. So yes, tell your employer, look, what you're doing is assault. What you're doing is like they're breaking all kinds of laws. And so, some of the some of our listeners might be familiar with the uh, many different organizations uh, produce these little notices of liability. It says, look, you're breaking this law. You're breaking this law. You're breaking this law. <laughs> just just so you know. What you're doing is criminal and illegal in so many ways. So yeah, take this notice of liability to your employer and say, look, what you're doing is criminal. And if you continue to do it, I will charge you with a criminal offense. 
And uh, and then, by the way, if you're convicted of that criminal offense, then I'm going to sue your ass off personally in, in, in a civil case, just so you know, okay, where you're going with this. Let's let's not, you know, fool each other. So you have to have the courage to stand up. And at the very least, you can simply quit and say, well, I'm not doing that. And and this is the gets us into the idea of parallel structures. And I think this is what will happen in the coming years. It will play out over years. It's not a short war that we're in, it's a long war. That people will simply leave these existing structures. And we saw this with COVID. Many people said, you, you know, look, you got to get the job. If you're you got to get the jab if you want your job. And they said, I, I don't need a job that that badly. <laughs> like, I, like I say, I was looking for a job when I found this one, sayonara. I'm out of here. Just leave uh, and go do something else. Go do something else with your life. I've gone through, you know, major life changes, career changes, at least twice in my life. It's not easy, but it's possible. We can do it. And you know what? In every case, in the end, my life has been better for it. And uh, it's a scary thing to do. But this, this is part of the, you know, you need to develop both the love and the, inter the, the courage within yourself. You have it within yourself to do this and say, no, um, this, this is a toxic work environment. And uh, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something else with my life. Yes, yes. And, and then in terms of other elements, um, in terms of the, the reestablishment of sovereignty, the individual communities and, and nation states, that obviously plays into this as well. Uh, yeah, you know, I think in the, in, in the, in the last uh, couple, the, some of the later chapters of the book, I start to touch on this more, more fully and that, you know, we have this, this, government structure everywhere in the world that's kind of a top-down structure and it has become more and more that way and and also every government in the world has collected powers from the lower levels over the years and, and accumulated more and more power into these top levels we've seen this for example in canada where increasingly over the last century or so the federal government has taken away powers from the provinces you know we had uh fairly well-known court case here just a few uh that finally the supreme court heard it and ruled very badly in my opinion on it uh i think this calendar year i think it was in 2022 where several of the provinces um uh, brought this case against the federal government when th they said no the federal government is impinging on provincial jurisdiction over resources when it's trying to uh i think the issue was the carbon tax I said, this is a natural resource issue, which is uh, clearly our constitution says this is the responsibility of the provinces, not the federal government. They're exceeding their constitutional authority. And the, the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, we're going to let the federal government do that. <laughs> so the government has taken, the federal government has taken control essentially over health care. And they've used, they've done this with money. This has happened everywhere. Oh, the, pro the federal government said, we'll give the provinces money as long as you do what we say with regard to the Canada Health Act. And so it's really a bribery. And this has happened on an individual level too, really. We've been bribed with money to give up our responsibilities. And as I say, you know, freedom and responsibility are two sides of the same coin. The only way you're going to get your freedom back is to take your responsibility back. The same goes through for the provinces. And we're, we're seeing some uh, um, rebellion now uh, with the gun legislation and things like that. Um, 
Yeah, Saskatchewan, Alberta, I think is just bringing in, I think Saskatchewan passed theirs already. It said, oh, we're going to have our own firearms act. We're, we're not going <laughs> to, like, we're not going to enforce what the federal government says. And now Saskatchewan is brought in and said, oh, we're, in fact, we're going to collect our own income taxes in Saskatchewan too. And Alberta, I hope, you know, has proposed to bring in the same thing. Yeah, we're going to set up our own provincial, just like Quebec does. They collect their own income taxes. We're going to set up our own mechanism for collecting income taxes in Alberta as well. So, you know, we're gradually starting to see some some pushback against this collection of powers into into the federal level, and you know, provinces taking these powers back. And the way forward, ultimately, I think, is to completely invert this top-down structure. And every one of us on an individual level must begin to realize that we are sovereign individuals. That means we're responsible for ourselves. If you want to have personal freedom, you have to take personal responsibility. Don't, and this is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, right? Don't ask the government to pay your medical bills. You take care of your own medical bills. You keep yourself healthy. You pay your doctor out of your pocket with your own money. That way, you can control your your medicine and the medicine, right? We have the government pays for it all, and it turns out they're controlling it, and they've actually weaponized medicine against us. And this has happened in every area of our life. It's not the government's job to take care of you in your old age and provide you with a pension when you get old. No, that's your job as an individual. You live your life, conduct your own financial affairs throughout your whole life in such a way that whenever you get to the age that you either you know cannot work physically or don't want to work, that you have the financial resources to sustain yourself. This is quite possible. Everyone can do this. And so if you and so now, right, they have they are essentially weaponizing the government you know, money programs, you know, pensions. If you want to get your pension, you're going to have to do this. If you're right, they're going to deny, and particularly once they go to controlling all the money with the central bank digital currencies, and I talk about that too, I call that, like that's the, the final uh, link in the whole control chain. I call it the one ring to rule them all. Once they control all money, and they roll all government payments into the into the universal basic income, and the central bank digital currency, and you get your money, whether it's a pension or workers' compensation or H or whatever else you money you get from the government, it's going to be in this form, and you're going to do exactly what they say. And if they say you have to get a certain vaccination, you're going to get it, or you won't get your money. If you if they say like you got to have your retinal scan and you got to have be tied into the digital identity, you will do it, or you won't be part of that system. And you know, that's why people, at least some people now, are trying to extract themselves from this government control system and set up parallel structures, other structures where we can have a life, we can have a means of conducting business and, uh, and sustaining ourselves outside this control system that we see is more and more closing in around us. Yes. So um, you did touch on the concept of responsibility, and I think it's something that you really pushed in your book that you cannot have freedom without responsibility. Why do you think so many amongst us fear this personal responsibility and have abdicated their autonomy to authority? Well, I mean, all of us have been have been educated and brought up and taught and you could say propagandized for my whole life that all of this is a good thing. 
it's a wonderful thing to have the government pay all your medical bills. It's a wonderful thing for the government to give you a pension when you get old. It's all a wonderful thing because they focus on, you know, what's what's good about it, but they don't focus on the other side of the coin and they don't focus on the dark side of all of this. Okay, and but more and more we're beginning to see the dark side of this. More and more we're beginning to see that 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 it wasn't such a good idea for us to have the government pay all our medical bills because they've weaponized the whole system against us. It wasn't a good idea for the government to to you know let the government just take care of our our pensions. You know, for anybody, I mean, the Canada pension plan is actually one of one of the more <clears throat> um, I won't say well-founded or funded because it's technically not. It's not a pension. These government pensions are not pensions in the proper meaning of the term. They're, they're social programs. They take money from people who are working and give it to people who are not working. So, and there is some fund, yes, of course. And the Canada Pension Fund is actually one of the better ones if you look around the, uh, the world at other major countries. I mean, most government pension uh, uh, funds are even worse than the Canada Pension Plan, but there's not money. It, 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 it can't pay you. They're all bankrupt. All of these government pension programs and government social programs are bankrupt. They cannot possibly pay out the money they promised to pay out. And that's one of the reasons that they want to replace it all with digital currencies. Well, and also see the age of population check out earlier than uh, than later, and this all this uh, assisted suicide, and and of course, you know, letting. I mean, Canada's. You know, if we're gonna just briefly touch on, on COVID here. I mean, Canada is in a shameful position where it's one of the few countries in the world that still considers to be COVID to be an, an incurable deadly disease. Yet, you know, many third world nations, uh, including India and, and many parts of Africa are administering life-saving simple medications like HCQ and ivermectin, which are extremely, um, extremely potent and reliable. I mean, we have the data, you know, the, 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 the real doctors, McCullough, Corey, Merrick, have all proposed, you know, very simple life-saving treatments. So, um, so Donald, we've been at it here for a while now. Let's let's conclude this portion of of our interview. Um, I'd like to get on to some of the other patterns of fraud and 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 you know, the communist subversion and some of the other details. But uh, let's let's look to do that on in another episode. Perhaps we'll reconvene next week if you have some time. And before we close today. If you had to provide just one important take-home message to the listeners, an encapsulation of your thinking into a singular phrase or thought, what would that be? Well, it, it might be the, the little mantra uh, that I kind of repeat throughout the book. In this spiritual war, our strategy is love, our tactic is forgiveness, and our weapon is nonviolent, non-cooperation. And, and I would end with, with the idea that I end the, the book with. Uh, the book, by the way, we, we never did mention the subtitle, right? The title is What the Hell's Going On? And the subtitle is The Web of Fraud That is Enslaving Everyone and How We Can Escape to Freedom. The escape to freedom is, is a very important part of it. And and the point that I, I make at the very end of the book, and throughout as well, that every one of us has the ability to do this. It is within us. Every one of us has the personal power to take control of our own lives, to live our own lives successfully, fully, prosperously, and with love. We can do this. We need to take, take back that responsibility. 
and take back our personal power to do this. It is within every single one of us. You can do it. That's a very powerful message. And of course, um, maybe we'll throw one more quote in from uh, Buckminster Fuller, which is that you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I think this is a very, very important crux of the entire argument or pathway because bashing your head against the wall of the narrative winds up with a sore forehead until you work to improve yourself and to build these parallel systems and forge a new model you're simply fighting you're no you're not creating you're you're in the action of fighting and resisting versus creating and i think that's a message that people especially amongst the freedom groups and, and the rest of the patriots and the other people that are looking to to do something this is what needs to happen we need to be the change that we want to see in the world absolutely so absolutely. donald um, if I'm sure listeners will be very excited uh, to read your book, and I know that I've been pumping it out to uh, a few of my close associates and people have been uh, making the purchases, uh, where can they learn more about you and your work and uh, uh, purchase a book if they'd like to? Uh, the, the, thanks for mentioning that, Michael. The best place is to, to just go to my website. It's easy to remember, www.cominghomespirit.com cominghomespirit.com. You'll find links to get the book. Uh, you can read more about me. You can see uh, something about my other books. Uh, I have, you know, uh, probably um, a longer kind of personal history there than you want to read. But yeah, there's all kinds of stuff there. I, I write a blog, uh, trying to be more regular with the blog. I've also started to um, uh, record those on video and uh, convert them into a video blog post as well. So you can, if you'd, if you'd rather watch than read, you can see some of my recent ones in video. So yeah, cominghomespirit.com, that's the best place. And you'll find the direct links uh, to get my book either directly from my publisher, which seems to be the best place right now. Um, Amazon US still doesn't have the, uh, uh, the the digital format, you know, the Kindle book uh, posted up yet. I don't know why they take so long. It seems to take them weeks and weeks. And and Amazon Canada for some reason has a ridiculously high price. They they can't figure out the exchange rate between the U.S. and Canadian dollar, I guess. So, yeah. But yeah, it, you can get it at uh, the paperback. You can get it on Amazon. But if you want the digital format, you got to go to my publisher's website. And there's a link right there. Just go to cominghomespirit.com. Yeah, and I think it's twelve ninety five or something. I mean, it's uh, it's yeah. to me it's a no no brainer purchase. I mean, uh, it's it's simply one of it's one of the most informative, well written, uh, interesting and entertaining uh, pieces of information that I've read in a long time. So, you know, Donald, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Um, you know, you've you've had a tremendously positive influence on my life. Uh, some of the questions that I had um, were answered, and sort of have a, a, a renewed vigor in terms of moving forward um, in this this quest to create a better world. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been an absolute joy to talk with you and, and be on your podcast. And, and uh, to everybody, God bless you. God bless you all. Thank you, Donald.